When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, Carl Morris, and our associate producer, William Smith. Visit patreon.com slash positivelytrek to help support the podcast. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, and more. Thank you all very much for your support, and enjoy the show. Dear Editors, Thank you for the confidence you expressed in me by accepting my proposed profile of Dr. Bashir. Unfortunately... Do you follow? Sort of. Good, because that's the key. The protein anomalies. The indicator... Who cares about anomalies? People want stories about things they can relate to. Life and death, good and evil. An outbreak of Kartalian fever would be just the thing. The brave doctor battles the deadly virus. Listen to me, I'm actually rooting for a plague. So we're going back 11 years to a novel that was released in 2010, April of 2010, and that is Star Trek Online, The Needs of the Many, and Dan and I are here on Positively Trek. Welcome to all of you joining us here on the show, and we only have one of the authors on (laughs) to discuss this book, because it's written by Michael A. Martin and Jake Sisko, and Dan, can you guess which author we have on? Oh, man. Hmm. Uh... We probably could. The, the temporal accords really prevented us from getting Jake, I'm assuming. Is that right? Yeah, the uh, gross violation of the temporal prime directive. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I'd completely forgotten about that, that there was a that, that was the conceit was that these were oral histories that Jake Sisko gathered uh, during times of war. And uh, I was just kind of like compiling it and editing it and taking the, the best bits whatever would fit in the volume that size yeah and it's very unusual so this book star trek online the needs of the many you are the author but you also are a character in the book so explain to us how this all came about well i'm I, i'm a, only a character in the book in that i'm a name on the spine really you know but jake jake's editor got you to take his interviews and write a book in right. that time. You're, you're a contemporary historian. Right. And I, you know, I never thought of it that way until I noticed a memory beta. My name is in there as an author and as a character. And I thought, what the hell is this? But then it was because of this book. Hmm. What we were trying to do was kind of um, World War Z. So, you know, Max Brooks is a chronicle, of the zombie apocalypse, but apply a format like that to, warfare wartime in star trek i'm glad you brought that up yeah because i definitely got world war z vibes from this 
part was was part of a book club and fairly recently read that book so uh, that was really fresh in my mind for this yeah that was um kind of the there was the yeah not terribly subtle <laughs> template we we followed it really just kind of it all just kind of fell out of me all at once it was really fast went really quick it's just you know you you get those voices in your head talking then it's just stenography <laughs> So this is this book is based on Cryptic Studios Star Trek Online. Yeah. So did they it uses their timeline. Yeah. So like how does is this work this book is really a complement to the game, I'm assuming. Right? Yeah. At the time I was hoping, you know, oh, they're gonna do a bunch of this kind of stuff, but it never uh this is the one and only book uh that tied in with their version of the Star Trek universe. At least I'm aware of. Yeah, I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's the only one. Yeah, their timeline at the at the time I think incorporated the uh, approach to J.J. Um, Abrams, uh, you know, sidetrack universe. Yeah, it was just the one and only uh, tie-in with that. But they, uh, one of the first things I remember seeing from them was a um, timeline with you know various historical beats on it, and it went out to the early 25th century and. I haven't uh I haven't really kept up with that in years so I'm not sure you know where it's where it's gone after that. And that would be kind of neat if uh, they would do more of that stuff but we never did. So that that timeline you're talking about I I'm assuming that's kind of the path to 2409 that's printed in in the back of the book here as well. How much input was there on this story that you crafted from the the Cryptic Studio guys or were you kind of given a lot of free reign to kind of decide how those played out in the story? I, I just kind of did whatever I wanted. And, uh, you know, as far as, you know, getting editorial guidance, it was really easy to take any chapter of the book. I mean, cause each chapter is a separate story, but, you know, leafs together as a sort of an epistolic novel kind of thing. You could reduce each chapter to a, uh, a, a kind of a just a really quick description. Goran's playing baseball. What do you think? You know, and the, you know, just go off and do it. So the thing really, it was easy to sketch it out. That nobody was really uh, interfering or giving me a lot of uh, restrictions. I just thought, well, okay, we, nobody seems to mind the main, you know, the the essential events that I'm relating, and so it's just a matter of just kind of filling it in, and you know, like a painting. Yeah, because if they've sketched out this timeline over the course of 20, 30 years. Right, you have all these beats that are already there. Yeah, that, uh, you're filling in those blanks in a sense. Yeah, so it felt more like a piece of sculpture you know, than a piece of uh, linear storytelling. Maybe mostly because the through line was not a single plot. The through line is a theme, the, the war. And within that, each each chapter just has to have a a satisfying beginning, middle, and end. So I, mean, I guess in a way it is really, it's an anthology. It's not really a novel, but there's always, there's the war as the through line. Yeah. Cause the, the basic premise of the novel is that Jake Cisco, of course, is a writer and it's the year 2423. And he has, he had conducted interviews with different individuals about this long war or the Undine War, which is right. species 
eight, four, seven, two. So we get a name to that. And so then his publisher hires you, the historian (laughs) to take his collection of interviews and put a book together called the needs of the many And so what we're holding is that for lack of a better way to phrase it is a future fiction book from the timeline. So as you being that author in this book, who's putting all these stories together and such. So tell us about the whole, like where did the name for species eight, four, seven, two come from? Was that from the game or was that something you came up with? You know, I, I honestly don't remember where I, I remember going into it. Um, that, you know, we had discussed using 8472 and very early in the process, I decided that, or maybe we had all decided uh, that, that 8472 can only be a placeholder. They, that's obviously not what they're called. That's not what they call themselves. Uh, <laughs> that's a, it's a Borg designation and uh, they don't even know it. There was, there was some kind of a myth, a Greek mythological origin for that uh, but I, I hesitate to say i came up with it yeah i read about a little bit about that i don't ne- remember the character's name but there's an interview in here with professor timothy palmer and he says that the name is meant to be mean groundskeeper and that it's to imply that they're stewardship of the fluid space and so like undine has something to do with water or i, I forget it was something greek about Mm-hmm. Uh, managing that's in the water. book yeah yeah Jesus. you should read the books <laughs> <laughs> i do also like the kind of double play on groundskeepers kind of being the basis of that because of course one of them discuss- yeah bo- appeared as yeah. boothby in voyager so that yeah. was clever wow yeah that was clever i've completely forgotten about that <laughs> see you've underestimated yourself yeah, I mean the the process for these things is uh, you know you got to clear out that that working memory. You know, once once you hit the send key and it's gone to the copy editor, you're just shaking your head like an etch a sketch. You know, get this stuff out, <laughs> out, out, out. You know, for the so you can load up for the next project. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's also hard because this book was 11 years ago, which means you wrote it more than 11 years ago. You know, and sometimes we've talked to authors about coming on older books, and they're like. Yeah, if I can remember everything about it, it starts to come <laughs> yeah. to you after a while when we start talking through it. <laughs> yeah, but no, I had totally. I still. I'm. Well, I'm taking your word for it about the origin of the uh, name of the Undine because yeah, that is clever. But I don't remember. <laughs> this happens to Sir Paul all the time. <laughs> Stories about the Beatles. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you say so. <laughs> you know better than I do. <laughs> I'm a little curious about how the this novel initially came about. So we talked a little bit about there's kind of the hope that it would be a bit of an ongoing series. I, I'm curious about like at the beginnings of that, like how did you kind of get the assignment to write this novel? Was it something that that you were actively kind of looking for or, or did was that a kind of an editorial coming down to then I, picking an author? I remember uh, Ed Schlesinger at Pocket Books he didn't have a lot of time. I mean, there wasn't a lot of time, but from the time when he knew of this thing, uh, this project, and when it had to be executed, it was pretty pretty narrow window. So 
I just remember my phone rang and can you handle this and can you do it fast? <laughs> and uh, said, sure, why not? My impression of the writing of it was that it was it was pretty fast. I don't remember agonizing over everything. I mean, I probably forgot stuff about this novel much, much more quickly and efficiently than I usually do. Uh, <laughs> it didn't seem like there were a lot of, uh, you know, very fundamental revisions to it. It didn't seem like, uh, it seems like when stuff got changed, it was just like, well, we can cut that. We have enough stories. We we really don't need the uh, the the Klingon Jimmy Kimmel show bit. And so that's not in there. Is that for real? Are you yeah, saying, yeah. You had like a Jimmy Kimmel Klingon type show? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's uh, just- yeah, for I guess for reasons that are, are obvious now, it's that was a wise decision on Ed's part. <laughs> but it wasn't like I mean, there's so much stuff, there's so much varied material in there. Editing it had to be a lot different than you know, a traditional novel with one story and one through line and you know, one big climax that you're building toward. It just didn't seem to, uh, it was more like an exercise in copy editing really than in, uh, you know, guiding every little idea in the project. So at least that's the way I remember it. Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you really are trying to scope out this timeline that's been given to you. You're not really stepping on anybody's toes. You're not having to be consistent with other novels or anything else that's taking place at this time. And because each of these thing, stories are really just interviews. It isn't this whole overarching story like like you were saying. And Dan and I were talking the other day. It's like, how do we talk through this book? Because it's not like a traditional novel. We're not talking about this story with these same characters. You're getting different characters and in different interviews throughout. So it does like chronicle the the whole war effort. So I could see where you have a lot of free reign to write in this. But let me ask you this. Do you play or did you ever play Star Trek online? I never actually played. Um, I remember getting a copy of the game, you know, a very early iteration of it. But my my, <laughs> my relationship com- with computers is uh, not that of the early adopter. <laughs> like right now I'm in a, in a sort of stone knives and bearskins period. I'm about to upgrade my my infrastructure here and then everything will be just, you know, cutting edge and then it'll stay that way for all of, you know, two years. And then a few years down the road, I'll, it'll be, you know, ancient Mesopotamian clay tablets again. And uh, it seems to me, I was probably at that time, I was in a pretty uh, primitive uh, computer situation. So I don't think I was actually able to play the game. Oh, that, and I think at the time there wasn't a version that would run on Mac. I don't know. Maybe there still is. That's right. Mm-hmm. I remember. And I didn't that. have a PC. Yes, there was. I think it was quite a long time before they did yeah. that version. I don't know. Maybe they have they ever. I think they eventually came out with a Mac. Maybe I'm pretty sure. I think so, but I. I think it was yeah, quite but some in time two, later. Yeah, in 2010. Um, I mean, I think that was when they launched in nine or ten. So, well, I remember when this game came out. I had a computer, but it just wouldn't support it because it was too slow my computer was too slow yeah. for it but then i got a new job around this time actually in 20 early 2010 and i got a laptop from work and it worked really well the computer itself and i thought oh i can play star trek online on this 
but they set it up where I couldn't download it. <laughs> I didn't have the admin rights to download it. So it took me years and years later till I've finally been able to get into it. And now I don't know what I'm doing. My ship just keeps flying around and I'm going nowhere and I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Those sneaky IT guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Life in Starfleet, just a metaphor for the real world. <laughs> right. In and out work missiles. But Dan, you've, You've played it just a little too, right? I mean, not a lot. Yeah, I played it for a couple years back when it first came out. And it, it's been ages now since I've played it. And I keep seeing like news of all these new stories coming out and they look really interesting, but I just, I don't have the time lately. So, uh, which is unfortunate. It looks really fun. <laughs> so I know. Yeah. Oh, that period in my life too, I didn't really have a lot of time for stuff like that. And it just seems like once, um, you know, once parenthood started in uh, 1999, just everything has been just in this hyper accelerated Scalosian water sort of uh, <laughs> mode. And uh, the first time things have really slowed down significantly really is this pandemic, you know, so it's given me an opportunity to start to, um, you know, go, go back to, um, what I did in college, you know, um, dust off my guitar playing skills and, and that kind of feels good. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you some of my favorite parts, there's, there's certain things that have stood out to me because I read this book when it came out and there's certain things I remembered in it. And one thing in particular was the department of temporal investigations, uh, loosely and Dolmer, the two agents. Right. Right. And of course, that was all that was before the uh, Temporal Investigations novels mm -hmm. right. came out. And so that was all I, I mean, I realized at the time that like uh, Christopher Bennett was not beholden to anything I set up there. And I tried to go out of my way to, you know, with the Q character coming in and saying, oh, you limited humans and your conception of uh, uh, reality. You know, it doesn't matter if all the uh, all the continuity matches up, essentially, is what he, he says at some point in the book. So you can have different versions of their story, you know, Luxley and Dahmer, or the uh, return of data, mm -hmm. uh, because that that story does not play in there the same way it does in the uh, in the overall novel continuity. None of that stuff had happened yet, but uh, I think that that gave me some additional freedom too, because I think we all we all knew going in that this is its in its own little continuity corner. It doesn't matter if something that comes out next year or six months from now tells the same story but completely differently. Right, mm -hmm. right, which is kind of touched in here with Dolmer because he's in the psychiatric care facility. And he has memories of other timelines. Right. And which that's the thing I really, one of the things I remembered about this book, because at that time, and, you know, spoiler alert for all the Voyager novels that came out around that time, but Janeway had died in the right. novels, but yet she's interviewed in this book. And I was like, oh, well, this is obviously like not matching up with that. But then Dolmer says he remembers a time when Jane, Janeway was dead. She wasn't even a lot. There were certain things he was picking up even on a Vulcan was destroyed. Right. <laughs> for some reason, Vulcan's still around. There were parts of the timeline uh, or, or the, the, the game timeline that that were 
from the get-go we're in conflict with the the novel universe and Janeway's death is an example of that I mean Janeway was her her death didn't as I recall it didn't occur at all in their timeline and it was they were just separate universes I guess I wanted to make some sort of a, a subtle I hope it was subtle you know a recognition of that fact through events in the story that lots of things are possible and uh, the timeline is uh, I might have used the metaphor in the book the timeline is like a rug that's been yanked and pulled and unraveled and patched so many times that eventually you end up with a spot that you just can't fix and so you say it and put the couch on on it so you can't see it you know so so they really freed me from a lot of constraints I think it was fun to see kind of a wink and a nod at a lot of that stuff. It, like that chapter to me really said to me like, Hey, you reader out there, don't worry about it. Like it's, this is a story that takes place in this version of Star Trek. And, you know, Dulmer says something like, I don't understand how there could have been a battle in orbit of Vulcan when Vulcan was destroyed a century ago. And, you know, Jake and Luxley look at each other like, Oh boy, this guy's nuts. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Oh, well, thank you. It's yeah, it's a rare thing actually when you're completely let off the leash in terms of observing continuity, because we all really tried hard not to mess up each other's continuity. And there were, you know, there were plenty of times where there'd be uh, whole groups of us kind of, uh, you know, just checking in with each other all the time, just regarding details of technology or you know just how things work you know so we're not contradicting each other um i remember doing a lot of that with the mission gamma books but we did number three i think it was the third one mm -hmm. three of uh four and uh there was a high degree of uh coordination yeah and there's still things in this book that tie to that novel timeline in the 24th century i mean we see that Picard and Beverly Crusher are together and they have their son, Renee, which we've seen in the novels. That's acknowledged here. Uh, Nan Baco is being president, for example. I mean, there's there's and even destiny is referred to in here. So it's not as if it ignores that timeline. And plus, this timeline really works with the Star Trek countdown graphic novel that came out that was tied to Star Trek 09. Right. And I think I think those comics are on the timeline, or at least as it was then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know to what degree they've ever had to, you know, like purge it and do a, a crisis on infinite earths and, uh, you know, completely, um, completely revise it. But uh, yeah, at the time it was it was pretty simple and it was easy to see where things diverged. So it's uh, it didn't uh, I didn't lose any sleep over that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciated one of my favorite parts was bringing in the appearance of Data in Countdown and kind of using his backstory and how they brought him back in the body of B4. And especially, I, I really enjoyed the kind of paying some some respect to the moral and ethical implications of that. I, I was wondering, yeah. like, how did you find writing that kind of resurrection of data before i wanted to show him as having some sort of a, maybe he did maybe he doesn't have all of data's talents and he doesn't have his intelligence and he doesn't have his you know analytical abilities but 
he has a kind of nobility and he knows what the right thing to do is in any situation. And he understands the concept of the needs of the many. And he took the needs of the many into account and stepped aside, uh, even at the cost of his, of his life. Cause there was one, there was one Android body and, uh, they couldn't both have it. And data would not be ethically unable to, to take it from him. Even if that was, you know, what was required to save the day. And, and of course, before having a similar ethical makeup, saw that, understood that, and then just kind of, um, you know, sort of threw himself on the grenade, as it were, and forced Data's hands. Like, you must take, take over this body mm-hmm. because uh, you're the only one. Yeah, I, I did love that in the end it was his decision and it wasn't like a yeah, forcible. It had to be. Yeah. It had to be. I, it, I mean, it would be like, I don't know. No, I would have found myself not liking Data very much. <laughs> yeah. Or, and Jordy <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because Data's about to make the sacrifice, but B4 essentially learns from Data what he's doing and why he's doing. So. Data is, in a lot of ways, a mentor to B4, and B4 takes what he's learned from Data and makes the sacrifice as opposed to Data do it. I mean, it's like they're pretty much, you know, very similar. In that respect, they're the same guy. Yeah. 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 I mean, they share the same body, but they are kind of close to being the same guy. Yeah. Cut cut from the same cloth. Yeah. And then Bruce Maddox walked away from, like, he was working on this, and then he walked away from this whole project. I like the way Bruce Maddox relationship with data evolved in the series uh i mean he started off as uh i guess you'd have to say a villain i mean he was like a, a nemesis he was like I, i'm here to vivisect you and then later that deepened into a kind of a colleague relationship and then they think they became friends and uh so i i wanted to maintain that and you know keep that on that level i didn't want to portray him as some sort of bad guy so have you been watching Star Trek Picard? Did you see the first season? Cause no, I have not okay. yet. I am, uh, I, am, I am woefully behind in all this stuff. Yeah, I have the episodes. I just haven't uh, just way behind in, in all my uh, media stuff. Yeah, because there's some parallels in here. As it was kind of fun reading these and thinking, oh, well, this is a little different from what we saw in Picard or even in the current... 24th century novel timeline but then there's some parallels in the two like so you can see how certain things relate uh between the series and the novel timelines and what we see here and online and i like how it also connects to the countdown comic because we also see an interview with general wharf in here and he's talking you know he's being praised for saving vulcan and uh justin ozer a friend of the show reached out to us and he's like did i miss something when did wharf save vulcan it was like, I had to say, oh, it was in the Countdown comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were a lot of little Easter eggs like that. That uh, Just number those amongst the many, many things I've forgotten. <laughs> the other thing is significant about the book. I think it's the only, it might be the only Star Trek novel, certainly the only one of mine that is footnotes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I like appreciated that. those, yeah. I uh, remember there being a bunch of... Uh, statistics i had to cite in uh the baseball story and the the gorns of summer (laughs) that's excellent actually that was that's funny that's what i was going to bring up next was the whole baseball match between the pike city pioneers and the gorn team 
on Cestus three, what was that like writing that kind of epic battle between these two groups and, uh, kind of reconciling the different versions of Gorn we've gotten over the years as well. I thought that was kind of clever. Well, I, um, uh, I got to, I got to have a little fun with the Gorn, uh, a few years later on another or a year or two later on one of the, um, uh, Titan books. Seize, seize so, the fire, uh, I believe. Right. Was that one? Yeah. And it was, it, it's always been my belief about the Gorn that they had to have been divided up into casts of some kind of special you know specialties because one of the things that we saw them do or, or heard them do uh all the way back in arena was they were imitating human voices and sending false messages and they sent a message to captain kirk about yeah beam down to our uh to our star base and you know we'll we'll serve you dinner and uh so I was like, there's some Gorn actor, <laughs> um, you know, mimicking these people. Well, you know, obviously the, the one and only Gorn we saw in that episode, you know, Earthling didn't have any, that was not his specialty. Uh, so I just thought uh, I wanted to have some fun with the idea that uh, uh, they're, they're split into multiple casts. We don't know that really. We're woefully ignorant of, of their culture. And we have a baseball game with them and we think it's going to be a bunch of uh, like guys in Godzilla suits, you know, lumbering around the diamond. Instead, it's Velociraptors from Jurassic Park. Yeah, I like how you say uh, you mentioned how some of these corn move really slow. (laughs) Yeah. Now you really have me uh, wanting to meet the Gorn Sir Lawrence Olivier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, the, the idea of playing a baseball game against the Gorn is something I've wanted to do since uh, Andy and I were doing uh, scripts at Marvel that only went on for two, two and a half years, something like that. So or not even that. Yeah. Cause it was mid 1996 when they bought the Tribble story and uh, no two and a half. Yeah. Two and a half years later, they marched us all out into the snow and shot us. <laughs> it was around Christmas time. They just canceled all the, all the Trek books. Very sad, Oh man. But yeah, that's something I would have if they if if Tim or Bobby or somebody had let me get away with the baseball thing that would have happened at Marvel. I would I would love to see this in comic form like that. <laughs> I never thought of that. That's incredible. Having read this book way back then, and then when I got to this part, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember this now. And it's like to me almost like the craziest part of this book. It's just picturing them all playing baseball together. You know, I mean that's almost up there with your whole Jimmy Kimmel klingon show you know? <laughs> yeah but it's 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 a fun idea and you know you can take it seriously because it's just another way that they're trying to find a way to settle their differences but then we find out the pitcher of the gorn is an undine infiltrator and so that gets back to this whole thing of them taking human form and other species forms and you can't detect them because of their dna they can change right. the dna to fit right so uh what could be more appropriate in a time of war, you know, paranoia, justified paranoia, but still paranoia. And that's always going to lead you into some uh, precarious places. And plus I just, uh, I always love the fact that DS nine, but well, actually starting with TNG acknowledged that baseball was a thing and that, you know, somehow human society just 
grew out of baseball or something. I just thought that was so sad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just uh, no longer have time for it. And But then by the 24th century, there's like a real effort to bring it back. And it's like, it's like watching uh, troops of actors doing Shakespeare in the park or something. And we're going to keep this alive. I don't know. Watching my, my kids grow up, not appreciating baseball and then soccer appearing everywhere. Uh, you know, come on, give me my baseball. <laughs> well, and it's cool too, because the interviews with Cassidy Yates, I kept waiting to see if anything was going to mention about where Ben Cisco is at this time. And we didn't get that. But of course, you probably couldn't go there. Well, yeah. And also I had to take the stories where they wanted to go naturally. So, you know, there are any number of facts that you could footnote and present as Easter eggs that are really not germane to anything that they're talking about in the story. Try to um, avoid, you know, shoehorning in facts just because it could just, you know, want to keep the momentum going and those things too many of those things just bring everything to a dead halt yeah i can see where that would be there there'd be a temptation to kind of get into those things like since you're given such free reign but yeah that that would be a for me a tough temptation to resist <laughs> i liked having easter eggs that were not necessarily star trek easter eggs too you know stuff about making baseball bats and what kind of genetically engineered trees they they had to grow ancestors three so they can make baseball bats yeah i i love those little details i thought that was really yeah it really builds out that that star trek future world too yeah you guys have really stoked a lot of memories <laughs> on this too i should so i should have flipped through it i guess before put them in here <laughs> I made a lot of notes <laughs> for this round. <laughs> I'm not used to making notes back then when I was reading, but now this time I made notes of all, like you, there was an interview with Seven of Nine. We got that one with Quark, Vic Fontaine. That was pretty cool too. Yeah, Vic Fontaine has always been one of my favorite characters. I love Vic Fontaine. I don't know what it is. It's just it's such a uh, such a keen observer of the human condition. Yeah, he's he's a very unique individual as well. And just kind of focusing specifically on him in this book, I, I really appreciated how well you illustrated like the idea of him being stuck in that particular time, but at the same time still having kind of knowledge of where it's all going, but but still kind of tied to that time and place. I, right. It felt like a little existential almost. <laughs> Avoiding falling into this, you know kind of nihilism that, yeah. i mean there was an episode of rick and morty with there was some uh household appliance on the table and its job was to pass the butter the little robot and yeah why, why am i here they're here to pass the butter oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that could have happened to vic that's amazing i love it <laughs> i mean imagine you know it's, it's always gonna be 1962 and you can never plan ahead for the tax refund you're gonna get in april because it's gonna be <laughs> April of the same year, and, uh, Vic is um, just positively focused and uh, outward directed and just thinking about other people and how they're doing. Mm-hmm. I guess that's all anybody can ever do to keep the, you know, the depression at bay. <laughs> and kind of like his genuine surprise at the uh, idea of holographic beings rights. I thought that was an interesting parallel to what was happening in the U S at that time or, or would be happening in a few years, really. 
that that's always been the biggest the, the biggest thing Star Trek has has to my mind has, has has been selling us you know as a culture is that there's room for improvement in the human condition and you know maybe uh, you, the human condition is somehow perfectible even in a world with uh, you know phasers and transporters and antimatter engines that's a hell of a far-fetched uh, concept uh, <laughs> but it's really baked into Star Trek. And so it's kind of encouraging to see, you know, even at that point in the overall continuity of Star Trek, seeing, oh, you know, one of the last of our unconscious prejudices, you know, playing out. So, oh, well, they're only holograms. Well, wait a minute, what do you mean only holograms? They're sentient beings, they have rights. You know, obviously through the end of Voyager, they hadn't come anywhere near resolving that because, you know, you see that shot of a thousand uh, Dr. Zimmerman's, um, you know, shoveling out the, the coal bin or whatever, you know, working in a mine. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a task it's never done. Yeah, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, this interview with Vic is interesting for the reasons we're mentioning, but this also could have applied to the doctor. And since the doctor would have had experience with with species 8472 being on Voyager, I'm kind of surprised you didn't go the direction of the doctor, but I'm assuming it's because you just, you're just wanting to write Vic Fontaine for this. Well, yeah, I can't, I couldn't, you don't want to have, have a bunch of superfluous, you know, duplication. I don't remember uh, agonizing over that particular detail. It's like, Oh no, we already have a hologram story. I think certainly the uh, dealing with Vic and his take on existence was, and that scratched that particular itch, I think. And it was, probably wasn't any real reason to, you know, gild the lily. And I mean, the book was pretty full. It was pretty cram full. I don't feel like, it, looking back on it, I don't have any problems with anything that got cut. You know, feel like it was particularly lacking anything I wanted to do. And I'm sure I overlooked a lot of stuff, you know, that I could have done. But I figured, well, you know, we've got to, a really quick turnaround project here and only a few weeks to execute it. You know, as long as I feel sort of satisfied by the, uh, the outcome, I, uh, I can live with it. Well, I like it because I don't feel like there's anything missing. I don't, I didn't feel like you missed any opportunities. I really enjoy this book because number one, even though I'm not playing Star Trek online, it's a different take on this continuity that I really appreciate. And then number two the Undine, that whole situation in a war, it, it makes so much total sense that the Federation and, and that part of the galaxy would have to deal with this species based on what relationship with they had with the Borg, and especially with Janeway helping the Borg against right. species 8472. They would feel threatened by right. the Federation. And uh, the uh, sort of social pathologies that the Undine touched off amongst humans there is a definite you were talking about like the the pathologies among humans and 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 other species and stuff the the book really is filled with this kind of paranoia and as you get into it it goes much deeper than you expect even and i think this was really brought home for me with the interview with wharf where by the end of the interview he doesn't seem sure if he's actually Worf or an, an Undine infiltrator, which yes. like is really unsettling, really unnerving. 
and, and yeah. it just sets you on edge for the whole book and, and it it works really well well i i, I mean i hope I, I i hope it's able to achieve that because now we have uh you know we have QAnon, so we can be off balance and uh gaslit all the time you know uh <laughs> joy <laughs> so i mean just think like none of that stuff existed in the world not yet or you know not to the point where it is now where you know swaths of uh uh humanity are going insane and trying to take over the capitol building it, it comes from the same kind of weird fears and paranoia and delusions so i wanted the uh i, I did want the undine to kind of have a little bit of that a little bit of that monster under the bed kind of vibe you're never sure yeah because throughout the novel the some people make the assumption the war is over, but it's always being pointed out. Is it really? Could they come yeah. back? I mean, the fear is always there. It's yeah. not over. And I, I really, and that point about Worf that you mentioned, Dan, reminded me of the interview with Dr. Jack, the genetically enhanced engineer from DS9. He, oh, right. The, for the Jack Pack. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. When he was talking about one of the best ways to win the war is to just allow the undine to win and just replace us all. And there'd be another Dan, Bruce and Michael with the same DNA and, and, and I mean, just replacing us and our lives would continue, but it's not us. It's somebody else representing us. Yeah. That brings to mind, uh, you know, Stephen Wright doing that joke about how uh, somebody broke into my apartment and replaced all the furniture with exact duplicates. Yes. <laughs> We wouldn't know, and uh, yeah, it brings to mind the uh, ending of the 1978 remake of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Because, uh, like it or not, that's what happened. Everybody got replaced, and then I'm sure they just kept right on um, going to work and doing all the same stuff they did went before they got replaced. So, oh, that's a grim thought. <laughs> it's a really similar argument to another novel we recently read. Spock Must Die, the old Bantam novel. Oh, yeah. A difference that makes no difference is no difference. Exactly. That's the exact line that, that's yeah. repeated in that book, too. That's great. Wow. That was only 51 years ago. Yikes. <laughs> I still remember that. I can't remember the shit I wrote um, <laughs> 10 years ago, but I remember what James Bush wrote half a century ago. Well, that shows who's more memorable. <laughs> No, Dan and I were talking about this the other day. I think that when we are exposed to something at a younger age, we remember it better than we do if we're exposed to something later in our lives. Oh, sure. I remember being blown away by that idea of, if I'm remembering it right, the, the chirality of the molecules mm. being reversed. So you had Spock and like right-handed Spock and left-handed Spock. <laughs> yeah. And the one with the reverse chirality, you know, couldn't uh he would starve to death eating our food because the molecules don't hook up correctly right <laughs> and uh you know just wow there's there are a few times in the actual course of star trek where i felt you know kind of mind blown like that that's definitely one of the places yeah i when we reread that book because i i read it years years ago but uh i was surprised how much i really enjoyed it i thought that was a really good one I, you know i think it did it justified my own uh my own misgivings about the transporter. I still can't, uh, maybe this is why as you know, in, in my advanced ripe old age, uh, Leonard McCoy is my favorite TOS character because, you know, he rightly distrusts all this stuff. 
you know, you think about it, you can't trust a coworker to uh, change the toner cartridge in the in the <laughs> office copier, like, or you know, put a new coffee filter in the machine. Is like, I'm going to let you like you know disintegrate me into basic uh, waves and rematerialize me somewhere else. I have some doubts about that. You know, I always think about that when I watch Star Trek The Motion Picture when they have the transporter accident. And then after that, McCoy beams in. I'm like, did they tell him there was an accident? Because if he would known there was an accident right before he beamed him, he'd probably say, no way, not no. Just take me in a shuttle pod to the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. That, to me, the fact that he consented tells me he was he was beaming in from, you know, wherever it was he was living in the deep south or <laughs> but I think he was a he was a he was a Georgia boy, so he was living in uh, he's probably living in Atlanta. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just passed him the other day walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in the movie he does you know grumble about using the transporter, but he still did it, you know. But yeah. I, I don't think I. But he, would. Yeah, but he couldn't he couldn't resist like touching himself just to make sure you know, <laughs> making sure all the chest hairs are still there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, now I'm. Uh, now I kind of want to go back and check out uh, Star Trek Online and see what. Uh, right. So now, Me unlike too. then, uh, I've got. Uh, well, like one of my kids is really super into video games. He probably could recite me chapter and verse on it right now. Yeah, that's actually one thing this book did was kind of make me want to go check out Star Trek Online again. Uh, after all these, yeah, years. and that was another. That was another success criteria. I would. I would say because, I mean, from a marketing perspective, when you're going to create a crossover like that, you want to draw the audiences in the same direction, you know, cross them over. I don't know to what extent that succeeded. I uh, I don't know if anybody was really measuring that. I don't know if it ever sold out. So uh, I don't think it ever had more than the one printing. So I guess I can infer from that. It's uh, like the great majority of mid-list paperbacks. They just... Uh, accumulate in warehouses every once in a while they send the authors a, a note saying uh you can buy some cheap right now but uh they're on their way to the pulping machine so you better mm. you know act now all supplies last it's really too bad because and i mean like i picked this up when it first was published back in 2010 but i have to admit it it sat on the shelf since then and this is the first time that i've read it and and reading it now, I, I really regret not cracking it open back then because it, it's definitely very unique in the Star Trek novel line. And I, like, like I said, I played Star Trek online. I think it would have been a lot of fun to kind of have that companion piece. There aren't a lot of examples in Star Trek literature of uh, like, like oral histories and stuff like that. I mean, there's some travelogue stuff, you know, where the um, audience is being addressed directly in the second person and a couple of like Fodor's guides to, you know, traveling in the Klingon empire or whatever. So there is a little bit of that, but uh, this one might stand alone as like the only real, you know, oral history where um, you're being given um, a historical narrative, you know, in the way you would from any historian. So I'm kind of proud of that. They don't get too many opportunities to do stuff like that. I think I think the way you approach this book was very clever. I haven't read that many books that are based on video games, but I've heard of some and I've read a few. 
and it's usually the story that you see in the video game and this isn't right. the story i mean because some people say it doesn't work as well as a book because it sounds like i'm reading a game but that's not what this is i mean this this is a good read whether you're into star trek online or not but it's not telling that story it's a story within the story well yeah i mean the whole the whole concept of a star trek universe the shared universe whether it's in books or comics or in video games it's a, it's a basket that contains you know many you know multitudes of stories so they just kind of let me go wild with that because all you really needed was a theme to unite everything the war and then uh, you know you could tell any number of stories that freed me of the obligation of having to micromanage a complex detailed continuity or or hew to a whole bunch of story beats like you would in a you know some action video game where um you know you're fighting zombies in raccoon city or something and you're actually you're actually adapting a story of the game into a novel that just really wasn't like an, an adaptation like that at all it didn't feel like that kind of job it just felt like oh i can just i can just write whatever i want <laughs> Well, is there anything that we've kind of not brought up that, that you wanted to talk about with regards to this book uh, that we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, well, you know, you guys remembered it much better than I did. <laughs> well, I also just recently read it. So yeah. I mean, <laughs> very unfair advantage over here. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember having any, any real agenda, you know, other than uh, I wanted uh, the Jake Sisko thing to feel authentic. I wanted the characters' voices to to be audible. You know, you could hear Cassidy Yates speaking to you in your head. Only uh, you guys out there know, you know, to what extent I succeeded. But uh, that was the that was the goal. Yeah, to to my ear, like reading it, it that really worked, and especially given the format that it was like a one on one interview, it really let you kind of sit across from those characters and and the voices. I thought worked really well uh, a couple in particular i remember thinking janeway sounded very janeway-esque if that makes sense <laughs> yes. which you know such a distinct unique voice you know it's great to capture that and and other characters as well i remember i, was, I think Catherine hepburn mm, absolutely right, right janeway to <laughs> Catherine hepburn i thought garrick was good too yeah well garrick is fun well the characters who are sort of pranksters at heart are a lot of fun. Q is a lot of fun. I also like appreciated a lot of the little quirks that were put in that, that like Jake noticed and kind of commented on as a, as a postscript. So one that jumped out to me was both seven of nine and Janeway referring to them as species eight, four, seven, two, and never once saying the undine and Jake kind of making note of that and thinking like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. I, I like those little touches. Yeah, wow. Another another detail, yet another detail I've forgotten. Yeah, Michael, you need to go back and reread this. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd really appreciate what you did here. Well, I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of, I mean, we really enjoyed the book, but what are you doing lately? Are you writing anything new? Uh, I don't have any Star Trek stuff in the in the hopper at the moment. Kind of uh, taking a little bit of a sabbatical. But I am working on a um, original fiction piece, and all I'll really say about it is uh, 
kind of a murder mystery, but it's imagine it's like 50% LA Confidential and 50% uh, Yellow Submarine. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, just imagine a um, series of horrible crimes in Pepperland. <laughs> Great. Well, if people want to follow you online, where can they find you? Well, uh, I'm on Facebook. Pretty easy to find. I don't maintain a website as such. Yeah, look me up. It's, yeah, it's a name that's common as dirt, Michael Martin, but should be pretty evident from the stuff I posted, you know, who it is. <laughs> Excellent. Well, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this book. And and like I said, I, I know it's been over a decade and I really appreciate you being able to kind of share what you remember with us. Well, uh, I'm happy to uh, have the opportunity. It's going to kind of a fun stroll down memory lane. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, I really enjoyed reading the book again. And yeah, you don't have to play Star Trek online to enjoy this. This is a Star Trek novel. It's something you definitely people should read especially now when we've got these different continuities going on and see the different parallels between the two and now that we're all trapped in our respective bunkers exactly what else are you gonna do right yeah (laughs) and then if anybody reads this book recently then quiz michael on some of the things in here and see if he gets it right if he remembers everything (laughs) that should be fun so dan where can people find you online you, well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And on Facebook, I'm always hanging out in the Positively Trek discussion group, our listeners group on Facebook. Yeah. Hey, we are also on Patreon, so you can support the podcast on Patreon. Look for Positively Trek on there and become a patron. And we have certain perks at different levels, so check that out on the site there. I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me occasionally also on the Star Wars Report podcast. So thanks, everyone, for joining us, and thank you, Michael, for joining us. And everybody, just remember what we always say here at the end of every show. Stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.